Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and today I'm interviewing Dr. Boyd Haley who is a pioneer in a variety of areas but specifically in chelating, developing chemicals to chelate toxic metals from our environment and us personally. So I'm at the Academy of Comprehensive Integrative Medicine, our 2018 conference in Orlando and uh, unbelievable event and just was surprised I haven't seen Dr. Haley for many years and he was He's going to share a story in a moment, but it's going to be a real treat. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. My so pleasure. glad we can talk. So yeah. most people watching this uh, probably haven't seen or heard of you. So if you could give a simple uh, description of your training, what you've been doing, and what you've been, what you've been up to recently. Well, I have a <clears throat> PhD in chemistry and biochemistry. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I did a lot of research. I was funded by NIH for 25 straight years. Uh, at, the, at the University of Wyoming and at the University of Kentucky. Uh, uh, in the later years I developed, in my early years, I developed a, a, a very uh, elegant biochemical uh, monitoring system called nucleotide photoaffinity labeling. And then I Wait, said, wait, nucleotide photo... Affinity labeling. A photo affinity labeling, nobody, okay. I mean, it's, it's kind of Star Wars biochemistry. Okay. But it, what it does is I... Is it the nucleotides in DNA or...? Yeah, nucleotides okay. like ATP. Okay. What I did is, everybody will understand ATP, I think. Mm -hmm. I took ATP and I made it radioactive, mm -hmm. which wasn't any big feat, but then I attached to that a molecule that would explode when it hit a photon of light. Wow, that's interesting. And when it exploded, it made a, a very reactive intermediate uh, that had a half-life uh, of uh, something like 10 to the minus 12, 10 to the minus 13 seconds. And so what it would do is if ATP was bound to a protein, such as my similar to the sodium potassium ATPase, if you were to shine light on it, because uh, the compound would work just like ATP without light. If you mm -hmm. hit it with light, it would form a covalent bond at the binding site of ATP on the enzyme it was interacting with. And so you could go through, and the, the real power of the compound was to take, uh, say, something like near normal tissue in a cancer, mm -hmm. uh, like in breast cancer, and uh, it changes. The nucleotide binding proteins change as it cells changes from a normal cell to a cancer cell. You could use uh, these kind of probes to see the difference between the ATP, GTP, cyclic A, NADH, all these binding proteins to see how the energetics of the cell was changing. Yeah, and the NIH was very So you did it for 18 years? They funded your research? 25. 25 years, I'm sorry. Yeah, straight, with the same uh, title. Wow. Uh, and then uh, I had a graduate student when I moved to the University of Kentucky that went to work in the Alzheimer's Center, mm -hmm. and a uh, research center for Alzheimer's disease. And she came back and told me they had no idea what caused Alzheimer's disease. You understand? <laughs> I didn't they like still it. don't. Uh, well, yes, they well, do. Well, the conventional I mean, I guys. Do. Yeah, conventional yeah. guys. But yeah. for the so they say they still they still don't know. But you got to be you got to not read the literature mm -hmm. to avoid it. And so what? I did is I set up a collaboration with this ex-graduate student of mine who was a postdoc in the Alzheimer's Research Center and we got uh, under this uh, study and we were funded by five years by mm -hmm. NIH because we decided to use my technology to see the difference between normal brain, mm -hmm. ATP, GTP and cyclic A binding proteins versus Alzheimer's disease and there was dramatic differences. Mm -hmm. I mean in Alzheimer's disease uh, there are several enzymes. I mean, like creatine kinase, a very mm -hmm. fundamental enzyme, mm -hmm. is 98% inhibited in Alzheimer's disease. We mm. showed that in my laboratory. Wow. Uh, and, the, the, and, and then we also found out that the tubulin, the major brain protein, 
that holds an axon in its extended uh, form and, and directs the, the direction that the axons will grow mm -hmm. and the dendrites will grow uh, is over 80 percent uh, loss of activity, GTP binding activity in Alzheimer's disease. Not in Pick's disease or any other dementia, only in Alzheimer's mm -hmm. disease. And uh, so that uh, uh, everybody accepts that. Nobody says that's wrong because that's good solid biochemistry. However, where I got into trouble with NIH and everybody else, it seemed like, was when I decided, read a book in the Alzheimer's library, and it was where they looked at 200 sets of identical twins from World War II, and they talked about which diseases were genetically inherited and which ones were you inherited a tendency to get the disease versus those which had no correlation at all. And Alzheimer's disease fit in the second. It is, they're susceptible to something, but not all of identical twins got Alzheimer's disease or at the same rate. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went back and at that time people were saying they thought maybe it was aluminum causing Alzheimer's. Uh, that was a, a proposal uh, by a, a very prominent Alzheimer's researcher at that time. And so I thought I would just take my technology, which I could do, that's the, the power of it, I could take normal brain and add stuff to it and say, would this make this brain lose all of the biochemical or develop the biochemical abnormalities that you would find in Alzheimer's disease. And I screened all the heavy metals because of the aluminum mm -hmm. concept. Not my idea because I was novice in Alzheimer's mm -hmm. disease at that time. And what we found was very dramatic. Mercury and only mercury. And at very, very low levels would cause uh, a normal brain homogenate to have the same biochemical abnormalities as you found in Alzheimer's disease. And that has been followed up and today, right now, there are six major things. Uh, one, the abnormal tubulin mm -hmm. uh, polymerization in Alzheimer's disease can only, is only caused by mercury at the levels that you would expect to find in the brain, I suppose, if you took it out. And so, so it, it, my, my makes that, when it does that, the synaptic clefts disappear and you form nerve fibrillary tangles, which is the major diagnostic hallmark visually that people used to say this person died with Alzheimer's disease. And then tau protein, tau protein, hyperphosphorylation of tau is a protein that connects tubulin to the neural fibrils, which form the nerve fibrillary tangles. So there's a direct connection between tau and those things, and they have found that mercury causes the abnormal hyperphosphorylation of tau. And how, does, how does the tau relate to the beta amyloid? Well, it doesn't. Okay. This is just another thing. Nothing. That was the last one we had to do because people would say, well, it's beta amyloid. And I was always kind of shouted down by people when I said beta amyloid is not the cause of Alzheimer's no, disease. No, no, it's just a marker. It, well, it's, it's a result of the disease. Yeah, yeah. And that's what has come out. In South Korea, about three years ago, they published a study. Because if, if, you, if you actually go and try to eliminate the beta, beta amyloid, you're not doing much for the Alzheimer's. No, you're killed. Well, you're killed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, patients, but beta amyloid builds up in Alzheimer's brain and you can cause that to happen by treating neurological cells, neurons, with mm -hmm. mercury. And mm -hmm. what happens, mercury inhibits the uh, expression of nephrolysin, which is the main protease in the brain that's used to chew up beta amyloid. Mm. So mercury doesn't affect beta amyloid, but what it does do is it keeps the cleanup the, mechanism. It keeps the protease, the cleanup enzyme, from being expressed. Mm. And so if you give mercury low levels, very low levels, uh, to tissues that's going to live for a while, you'll see a buildup of beta amyloid protein. Yeah. And so, bottom line is, six out of six of the major biochemical abnormalities and pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease 
can be stimulated by adding mercury. And I can tell you that was, that was something that NIH or the people who run NIH at the very top did not want to hear. Now, I've interviewed Dr. Dale Bredesen before. He's an MD and I think he's a PhD too. Yeah. Are you familiar with his work? Yes. Because I think he's classified <clears throat> Alzheimer's into several subtypes. Toxic mean one, which would fall into the category of the mercury uh, exposure. So uh, does the, and I, I'm from, I'm, I think inflammatory and uh, I forget the others, but have you looked into his work and does, it, does uh, the, do the other categories have the characteristics of the brain markers that you just described? I, I don't, yes, because that's how they, I mean, Alzheimer's disease is a tautology. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're demented, how do they know you have Alzheimer's disease? They don't know until they no. die, and right. they look at your brain. Well, and definitively. You yeah. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, you, you have to have nerve fibrillary tangles and beta amyloid uh, plaques and hyperphosphorylation of tau. That's what they teach medical students. That's how you, if you die with that, you have Alzheimer's disease. If you're demented as can be and you don't have those factors, you die to something else. And Pick's disease would be something similar, similar to that. I mean, it does not have uh, those factors. And so uh, uh, the, the bottom line is there's the Alzheimer's researchers do not, or I shouldn't say they, because that throws a lot of good people in the pile of people. Mm -hmm. But the NIH does not want, because that was their big plus. They said beta amyloid is the cause of Alzheimer's mm -hmm. disease, made them heroes. Mm -hmm. They found the cause, so now they would find a cure, which they couldn't cure by treating that. But uh, they don't want to look at it being something simple. There's no money to be made if you tell people, if you don't want to get Alzheimer's disease, don't expose yourself to mercury. Yeah. Mercury is not the only cause. I would never say that, and I never did say that. Mm -hmm. I said mercury is a major exacerbating factor because we put dental amalgams in our mouth and the, ma the major uh, exposure, a source of mercury in our body comes from dental amalgams, according to the World Health Organization. Mm. And so you look at this, it all makes sense. And the first case of Alzheimer's disease, and you've seen Alzheimer's disease pictures, I mean, mm -hmm. of the brain, of the brain. Mm -hmm. it's hard to miss from a normal brain. Sure. There's not much, not much like that. And we saw it in 1903. We started putting amalgam fillings in people's mouths in America in about the 1850s. Civil War, right? Right before yeah. the Civil War. Yeah. Right Still doing it, but we're making progress in getting it out. Yeah. It's in the I process know. of being banned, yeah, thankfully, through efforts like Charlie Brown. With them for a long time. And yeah, you're, so what, this 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 uh, delineation, this characterization of Alzheimer's through the markers that you just described. When did when did you do that research? When was that completed? That would be about 1988. Uh, 88. So 20 years ago. Yeah, and and I've never been invited to an Alzheimer's conference to talk and present my ideas. And that what really uh, frustrates me is that when I published this in a, 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 in, in a book that was uh, edited in Germany, mm -hmm. because they were very curious about this, and uh, we proposed that at that, that time that the APOE, explaining the APOE, problem, I was the first person to do that, because when I first heard the APOE 2 and 3 and 4, mm -hmm. the risk factors involved, I immediately went to the protein database and looked up the structures of those proteins and what was different. And the big difference was that you lose, you have two cysteines on the surface of APOE2, and if mm. you inherit two copies of that, you'll never get Alzheimer's disease. You'll, you'll die of something else before you ever, you'll be in your 90s. But if you get two copies of E4, both those cysteines have been replaced with tyrosine. Mm. And so what is it? And, and these are all amino acids. Yeah. 
these are yeah, these are amino acids on the structure. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is APOE2, when it leaves the brain carrying cholesterol, oxidized cholesterol, which is its functional, major functional job, mm -hmm. is a housekeeping protein. It's taking debris out of the brain into the cerebral spinal fluid, into the blood, to be excreted in the uh, and, and, the the, and this cysteine amino yeah. acid on A2 obviously could bind to mercury pretty effectively, it, it, whereas it, the tyrosine can't bind at all. It can't do it at all. Yeah. And I propose that. And you would think that, since they can't explain it, mm -hmm. that that would be somewhere on the list of the, the discussion. Is it possible that this uh, APOE2 is carrying out mercury, whereas the APOE4 can't do it? And what it does is it builds up, uh, that allows the mercury to build up in the brain and uh, causes the problems that we see. So uh, towards the end of the 80s, you had done this characterization and mm -hmm. developed some uh, models of how you could uh, assess Alzheimer's. Can you describe your progress into the next step, which is actually developing therapeutic interventions that could address this mm -hmm. in either prevention or actually <clears throat> treatment? Yes, uh, the, the real problem, uh, I, that I had as a chemist, Alzheimer's disease is associated with oxidative stress. Mm -hmm. Mercury is not a redox metal. No. In other words, it can't no. make hydroxyl free radicals. But what mercury absolutely does do is it displaces iron and copper off of the natural binding proteins that are in the brain. Interesting. And when it releases that iron, and it does it slowly over, mm -hmm. you know, we're not talking about something that happens to you right away, although it can happen if you take mm -hmm. a huge amount, you mm -hmm. become sure. a bad hatter. Yeah. But when mercury displaces iron, it stops ATP production in that electron transport system. Through, gen through the generation of hydroxyl free radicals through the Fenton reaction? or when, uh, the, the electrons going down the electron transport mm -hmm. system are the major ones that uh, make superoxide anion that mm -hmm. goes to hydroxy right. and right. hydrogen peroxide that is used to make hydroxy free radicals. When you block that electron transport, that doesn't keep NADH from coming into the end and donate an oh, electron to that okay. system. And so you get an overabundance of electrons that can't go out so and be converted into ATP and water. So the mercury is blocking the cytochromes? Yes. And it, when it does that, it, it does by attaching that. to them? It does that by to, displacing to, to, iron from the iron sulfur centers. Okay, so this iron is important for the cytochromes. I mean, they re yeah, require sure. iron. They yeah. require iron to work. And mercury will displace iron from about any side because wow. they have much higher affinity uh, for the sulfur. And they, say they have the same uh, valence, electrical valence? Yes, yeah. in the same size, right? Yeah. And if there, there's publications now showing that mercury exposure totally uh, screws up the, the uh, metabolism of iron in the body. If you look at the data, and I, I'll, I'll talk about Interesting. it Interesting. Would it, would, would it be, Dr. Dr. Haley is actually speaking at this uh, conference and presenting his findings tomorrow. Um, the would it would seem that if a person had high iron levels that this might even be worse if they had hemochromatosis for example well, would, sure. did you did you notice that and when you compiled your data i mean because if that's your proposed mechanism this well, displacement of the iron if you have iron pre-existing yes. higher iron levels it's going to be bad I'm, I'm working toward chelating toxic metals free iron is a very toxic metal okay everyone knows that and free copper is too wilson's mm -hmm. disease and hemochromatosis is used and uh, some of the iron overload uh, diseases mm -hmm. uh, so what a, uh, the interesting thing about our compound that in, on the laboratory bench if you have iron or mercury in a test tube in water in a buffer and you add nbmi dissolved in an organic uh, methanol or ethanol it'll precipitate all, all of the iron 
or the uh, mercury. It takes it all out. It binds it both of them very, very tightly. It binds mercury tighter than iron, but it will actually chelate iron. And we've done this on a, an animal model. It's called an H67D. We paid to have this done. My company did. Uh, this was done on uh, a model, I think it's for hemochromatosis, but it might be for anything else. But this rat model has the same genetic modification as you see in people with hemochromatosis. And they build up iron in their body to the point where they become demented, then they lose the functionality of their limbs, and then they die. Hmm. When we give these rats NVMI and take them out and then look at them, because you can take them out and you can measure... Now what's NVMI? Uh, that's my drug. Oh, okay. Well, Is it true? Yeah. Oh, Merimid. So yeah, that's, that's a new chelator. Yeah. Song. So what? What? Well, we're. This is really useful information, but I think we s kind of jumped up about a few decades. So <laughs> I wanted to go back in history and kind of help have you explain your process of identifying a chelator to remove the heavy metals to block and prevent or treat treat Alzheimer's. So maybe you can walk us up to the point where you're using the MBI now. Okay. Well, you know. because yeah, there's a long history, and, and in that history. You, uh, you were vilified and, and yes. really took a, bl a brunt from the federal regulatory agencies for developing this and un un absolutely unfairly. So, well, it was uh, the lack of help from them as well. I didn't mind them coming in questioning me. Yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, I would have appreciated some interaction with them. But they didn't do that. They just came in my lab nine days and shut me down, took everything, and treated me like I was making cocaine. Yeah, but let's okay. before let's get get up to that okay. point where you developed this and how okay. how you came through the process because you really have a brilliant innovation that has great potential to help so many people with neurodegenerative diseases. Well, the thing I what you know with the Alzheimer's disease finding and publication, I published all that. I mean, this was published in some of it in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Mm -hmm. uh, and for those who don't know, that's like one of the most prestigious research journals. Yeah, it's hard to get in there. Yeah, and uh, but anyway, the. Uh, the, I, got, I got recognition from the International Academy of Oral and Medical Toxicology, mm -hmm. and mainly because I published this thing, it mimics, it, causes, it would be an exacerbating factor for Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. I didn't grandstand and say I have found the cause of all Alzheimer's. I said, if you're going to cross that thin red line and become demented with Alzheimer's type dementia, you should not have amalgam feelings that mercury, any exposure to mercury. Mm -hmm. Don't eat fish and everything yeah. like that because that seems to be the or fish are, factor. Yeah, fish are. Loaded with Loaded mercury. mercury, yeah, because yeah. not all fish are. I'm right. not. I'm not. I'm, I'm definitely a fish eater. So yeah, yeah. I didn't mean. To, I came across the wrong way. That, but anyway, <clears throat> the. Uh, uh, so I started talking. I was invited to give a talk to the International Academy of Oral Medical Toxicology, and I thought they were a group of toxicologists. <laughs> they didn't really realize they're biological dentists. Yeah, they're biological dentists. They didn't know a thing that I said, and uh, except at the very end, they uh, got the idea that I thought mercury was a bad thing to have in your body. Yeah, yeah. And. Uh, Anyway, that got me started, and the, so I. So, I, what year was that? That would be about 1990. 90, okay. 90, 92. Uh, but anyway, the uh, uh, that got me involved uh, in doing mercury toxicity because they said dental amalgams are toxic, and mm -hmm. I did not believe them. Matter of fact, <laughs> you were skeptic. Oh, very much so. I mean, I was. Uh, uh, did you have some yourself? Oh yeah, I had three. I had a okay. wife that had a lot more, mm -hmm. and uh, had a lot of medical problems too. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I didn't believe them, and they took me through. I remember it was Dr. David Kennedy uh, took me around with a mercury vapor analyzer, which I knew what that mm -hmm. was. Sure. And he was showing me. He from your, from he you knew, you knew from the lab work that you were doing. Pardon? You knew from the lab work what oh, they sure. did. Okay. And anyway, the, uh, they tested people, and they showed that if you had amalgam fillings, and if you chewed on them, 
mercury went up, and I still didn't believe them because I thought they, I thought maybe they had a trick machine. Yeah, or something. yeah, yeah, sure. And so I went home uh, to my laboratory. Uh, I was chairman of chemistry at that time at the University of Kentucky, and I got the uh, OSHA to give me their uh, mercury vapor analyzer, and I went around checking students and secretaries and everybody uh, that had amalgam fillings, and it was amazing. And I, so I called them back and I said, no, you, you know, you're right. This is, this, this should be amalgam. <laughs> they would shut down my laboratory if they had that much mercury. As I was running in the mouths of some people. And some people, I remember one young lady that had, I don't know, her must have been a dentist because she had a mouthful. She must have had every jaw tooth filled with an amalgam filling. And they could, they, her friends started calling her metal mouth. <laughs> she paid to meet her when she chewed the gum. <laughs> it was just horrible, horrible. Uh, all, right, all right, yeah. but folks, just a little introduction here. This is pearl number one, okay? If you or someone you love has mercury fillings, still has those silver fillings in your mouth, get them out. I mean, here we have an analytical ob objective measurement showing massive release of mercury from a skeptic. Who, do, who did not believe this and went out to disprove it. I did not think, and I told him that. I said, the FDA and the CDC would not allow you to put something in your mouth that put out toxic levels of mercury. Yeah, that's I, what I you believed. Believe oh, yeah. I believe him totally. I'm, I'm not, I mean, like I said, I, I grew up most of my life being university mm -hmm. scientist, sure. professor. Traditional si research liberal, scientist. And now I'm a libertarian. <laughs> I mean, our, our, our pharmaceutical, our, um, Medical authorities have all been uh, captured. By yeah, well, we'll get there. I want you to continue the story. So it's 92. You've done okay. this at Mercury Vapor and I was, you're convinced. You, you, you've converted from being a skeptic yeah. to be actually being a crusader that this is toxic. we got to get it out of your people's mouths. I, I did lots of studies. And I even had, we did an IAOMT-funded study where they had dentists. Uh, mm -hmm. I made uh, little plastic uh, uh, containers where they could... Uh, look like cavities mm -hmm. and send them out to dentists and they would fill them up with the, and they were all alike all the same size same diameter same depth and we'd have different dentists uh, fill them with different uh, dental materials different amalgams from different sources and then we brought them in we let them set for a while because they were so uh, initially they were so high in the mercury release release that we couldn't uh, put them on the machine I mean on my they, they, they they peaked the meter. Peaked the meter up. Yeah. And so we let them sit for about two months, and then we went back and we measured the amount of mercury was coming off when it had leveled off. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we found is that you know different dispersal alloy and they have all have different brand names. Mm -hmm. They all release different amounts of mercury, and it made a big difference what dentist mm -hmm. packed them in, because I think the pressure on packing them makes uh, the release come out a little faster or a little different because the same brand given to three different dentists would release different amounts of mercury. But mm. they all release the same amount. You know, we, we test them not just one day, we test them sure. over a long period of time. And what we showed is there's no doubt. Mm. There's no doubt that uh, amalgams released quite a bit of mercury. And uh, at that time I thought, well, this would be easy. We'll just show us to the FDA and they'll change. <laughs> Uh, and or the ADA. Not, uh, not only, uh, ADA never talks to me. Yeah. They, they, I mean, you, you say amalgams are bad and they, they just don't talk to you. You're yeah. wrong yeah. Uh, and they don't want to hear what you have to say yeah. and they don't want to look at science. I think really basically uh, they're the major problem of mercury uh, uh, issues that are caused in the United States is from the ADA because they don't look at anything honestly about Yeah, about well fortunately it's changing because of the, the, sure. the, the ban, the treaty that the U.S. signed to ban the use of mercury yeah. and many other countries have adopted it, sure. beginning yeah, to implement. That, that so a, a it's a big, it's a big change. So, but you know, we still are, we still, 
uh, how are left with the ravages that have really devastated people, some, yeah, yeah, the people, and even younger people that still have them. Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell us how you came, you know, so you recognize it's a problem, and you realize there's an opportunity here, or not an opportunity, but a need to uh, provide, to have something that effectively removes this from the body. I would yes. assume. There so no tell us about that story. Well, that, that story came, it was a, a, kind of a circular thing. First of all, a group of uh, military pilots, mm -hmm. one of, they came to me and said, would you come with us to the Pentagon to talk to the general of the Air Force? Because we're having all these people die of ALS-type symptoms uh, based on uh, the fact that they served in the uh, Gulf War I. Mm -hmm. And so I went there, and I, I, I would say their names. I know them quite, I mean, I know them reasonably well, but I don't have their permission to, to mm -hmm. say. But they took me, and I met uh, uh, General Mike Ryan. I went mm -hmm. there one time, and I talked to him, and I told him uh, this thing about amalgams, and he had the, the, his uh, Surgeon General from the Air Force there, uh, and he and I got into a, a mild disagreement. And he kept saying, the thing is, all this stuff is bull crap. Mm -hmm. And I kept saying, I said, well, then the people, because at that time people were talking about autism, and one of the officers there brought that up. I didn't know anything about autism at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, well, where are all the older autistics? If this is not a new, show, uh, a new problem, mm -hmm. where are the older And he didn't have an answer for that. And so uh, later I went back a second time with the same group, uh, to, and, and Mike, General Ryan had several medical doctors and and the people these uh, they had medical people for the Marines and the Army and all of them were there and they gave me a good working over but it was not hard they asked fair questions and I could tell that you know they were basically uh, concerned about the fact and this all goes back to when I was a young soldier I what branch go, of the military did you serve? I was a military. I was a medic in the medic. U.S. Army. U.S. Army, okay. Yeah, and I was a private. I, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it wasn't like something I wanted to go there and spend my life, but I also yeah. had a degree in chemistry mm -hmm. at that time. But anyway, you walk through the line. They give you, with the air guns, mm -hmm. uh, you know, about nine shots. I don't know. I got sure. all my medical <laughs> records. All I could tell you is, is that I got sick as a dog, and I was put into a, a dispensary with uh, several other people that were equally sick, and some of us got over it and went back into the training cycle, and some didn't. And, uh, but I, I do remember that vaccines can make you sick because that's mm -hmm. all I ever had up to that point. I never had a sick day hardly in my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I remember that, and, and that really, really stuck in my mind. When I read an article, was, I think it was published in the Townsend Newsletter, mm -hmm. saying that you didn't have to go to uh, the Gulf War to get Gulf War syndrome. All you had to do was get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what this whole thing with, I mean, this, it's, I'm getting into all, all of this in, in, in totally proper order, but that's what came out of that uh, discussion with the general. Was it why? Because uh, there was a person there, and he's now dead, mm -hmm. that went with us. He had uh, ALS and also had developed cancer, and he was a very healthy person. And they said there were several people that were on uh, Navy pilots. They never landed in the Gulf, but they got a lot of shots because mm. if they got shot down, they had to survive. Them. So in the connection with the vaccines would be yeah. the preservative yeah. mercury is thimerosal. Yeah. That was in my head. I mean, if there's yeah. something in there that's causing it, but I didn't say that. Mm -hmm. That and that, and I wasn't the one that found out about the Gulf War One syndrome being related to the vaccines because you could get the vaccines and get Gulf War and never go into golf at all. Yeah, and that was the thing. But anyway, that got out to some group of people, 
And uh, at that time, I didn't know anything about the autism problem. Mm-hmm. But then I got a phone call from a, a group, Cure Autism Now, mm-hmm. in Louisville, Kentucky, asked me to come over and talk to them about uh, what I knew about the Marisol. And why I knew a lot about the Marisol was when I went, when I after I graduated from, uh, uh, got my uh, PhD and my postdoc finished at Yale, I went to the University of Wyoming, and I'm, I'm very much a, 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 an outdoorsman. I do a lot of hunting and fishing, mm-hmm. and I did that in skiing, and I wanted to get rid of these glasses because they get in your way when you're getting hot and cold and breathing, mm-hmm. you know, it's just not a good thing to have. So I went to get contact lenses. Mm-hmm. And when that lady put the contact lens solution in my eyes, they, they I mean, it's like she couldn't, uh, like she had battery acid to my eyes. Mm-hmm. It just turned bright red. They would do it today. Mm-hmm. And if somebody pays me enough, I let them do it and show them how. <laughs> I mean, because you can be incredibly sensitive. This is the kind of stuff that everyone else uses. And, and thymerous cells in these contact lens solutions? Yeah, that's it's what a preserve. that lady told me. Yeah. The, the optometrist, she said, she said, oh my, you really have sensitive eyes. I said, well, what's in there? She said, well, you'll have to make your own contact lens solution. You know, and you did that. You put little salt tablets yeah. on the thing and heated them up. And you didn't have thymerosol in it because you yeah. couldn't preserve it. But it's a thymerosol. So, you know, being curious, I went back to my lab and opened up the PDR and looked at thymerosol. And I thought, who in the world would put that in anybody? Yeah. I mean, that's a toxic looking compound. Well, it kills the bugs. Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> can, can it can kill you. It kills everything. Yeah, yeah. And so, anyway, that, so I had that locked in the back of my mind, just knowing that thymerosol was something. Never took a flu shot. So this is, we're talking like early 90s now still. No, no, this would be 1974. Oh, 74, okay. That's so you, you went back, okay. Contact lens, but, but then going there and I kept telling them, look, I know the stuff they put in vaccines is everything because in 1977, there was a report from a Toronto hospital where they treated children with mer- by painting their umbilical region with methylate or mercuricone, hmm. which is a thimerosal preservative to kill the bacteria yeah. on the skin. And they killed. I don't think it's it's sold anymore. I think it's no, no, it's, it's it banned. Was, but the reason they don't sell anymore is because of this uh, study done in Toronto. Hmm. It wasn't a study done. It was just a result of uh, the death of ten children of, out of thirteen that were treated for umbilical cord infections in this one hospital. Hmm. And so they went back and they pulled out their uh, the organs that they had done from autopsy, and they found out they were extremely mercury toxic. In other words, the marisol when you put it on the skin. Immediately or mercury, the marisol releases. But the, 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 in the study, it had to be they weren't putting the marisol. They were using merc- probably mercuricum or. No, they were using the marisol. They were using the marisol. That's what they say. Yes, it was. All, it was in the. It was in the the tincture. It's called merthiolate. Okay. I think that's Merth- what Yeah, merthiolate is. Yeah. The the marisol. Yeah. What this told me, and as a result of that study, that was done in 1977 and 1978, the FDA outlawed the use of. Uh, Thimerosal. Esmerthiolate. Uh, Esmerthiolate, right. Yeah. And then go up to 1988, that's when uh, the Thanks. CDC decided it was a proper preservative to put in the vaccine <laughs> to give the children on the day of birth. And you understand what that study showed, uh, not that study, but that report showed, is that infants cannot get rid of ethyl mercury. I mean, organic mercury is really lethal to infants. They have no way of getting rid of it. And I know that for a fact because as an adolescent, I was raised in a farm, merthiolate was in every medicine cabinet ever around. And if I how many times I'd, you know, baling hay or doing something, you'd get scratches, you'd go paint it with merthiolate and it didn't kill yeah. anybody. And I'm talking about, I started doing that probably when I was 10 to 12 years old. And yet you put it on babies, infants, and it killed them. And I said, this is something that's super sensitive to infants. Yeah. 
They have yet, it's very disgusting to me that our CDC has yet to fund a study to say, what is the sensitivity of infants to thimerosal? What is the difference between that, of the health status of sure. children that are not vaccinated versus children that are fully vaccinated? All right, so, yeah. so you pretty well established the yeah. concern about the danger and the toxicity of mercury exposure, whether it's through thimerosal, mercury fillings, or yeah. you know, fish that are loaded with mercury. So, you know, you, you've had this knowledge base, and I'm wondering what your process was to develop an antidote to this. Well, you know, the, the problem was I would go to uh, these IAOMT meetings, mm -hmm. and I was asked to give a lot of talks uh, at the, the autism conferences, and I met a lot of people that, uh, you know, their stories were just so consistent that a lot of their problems were caused by exposure to mercury. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I'm talking to people saying, uh, well, how do we treat this? Well, we give them DMSA or DMPS. And then you talk, there'll always be somebody in a group if you're four or five years, say, oh, I can't take that, it just kills my kidneys. And so then I started reading, and I realized DMPS and DMSA were invented in World War II. And, you know, not, not as uh, to treat humans, but to treat, uh, get mercury out of water and stuff like that, and, mm -hmm. and for other properties. And they were developed by the Germans and the Russians mm -hmm. in the World War II war effort. And uh, then I started looking at it, and there was nothing about the chemistry of that that made me feel comfortable. Mm. In other words, DMPS and DMSA both have thiols on adjacent carbons. Mm -hmm. And thiols... And a thiol, for those who aren't chemists, is a sulfur, sulfur group? Sulfur, yeah. yeah. And sulfurs are big. Mm -hmm. And you look at that, and you say, and they always draw pictures of the one mercury atom being bound by DMPS or DMSA. Mm -hmm. And it can't do it, because there's not, stereochemically, there's not enough room between a carbon-carbon bond, I mean, that's not nearly half the diameter of a mercury atom. It can't fit. Mm -hmm. And that's been proven by other researchers, done by uh, some people in Canada, that DMSA and DMPS are not true chelators. They form a sandwich complex. And you know, in other words, if you have mercury, you'll have two DMSAs attached to it, not mm -hmm. one. Interesting. And, and what, that, what that means to a chemist is that that one sulfur bond is much li more liable for an exchange Say, if you're taking DMSA out through the kidneys, mm -hmm. it gets into the kidneys and goes to the blood in the kidneys, it releases that uh, one uh, DMSA uh, and replaces it with a more reactive thiol that's on a protein in the kidney. And that's exactly what happens if you take rats and make them moderately mercury toxic mm -hmm. and treat them with DMSA, you can kill them because you translocate the mercury mm. from the blood and, and other organs and concentrate it in the kidney and they die of renal failure. Interesting. And so that's the reason you should, I mean, DMSA just should not be used. Ever, from your perspective? No, I mean, it's the best thing that the doctors have had. Because it's being used now quite a bit in, in natural medicine physicians. I know. And, uh, uh, those people don't like me DMS, very much. By me DMSA and D, you see have the same feelings for DPM, DMPS? Yes, okay. it's the same thing. They both have thiols on adjacent mm -hmm. carbons. They both form, form sandwich complexes and they're both negatively charged. So the mercury that makes you sick when mm -hmm. you inhale isn't in your blood. Mm -hmm. Not most of it. Most of it's inside your cells. And mm -hmm. DMPS and DMSA don't enter the cells. They only take mercury out of the plasma. Okay, so you've, you, and you came to that conclusion after studying it? Well, yeah, looking at it. Just, just as a chemist, I mean, it was obvious to you. As a biochemist, yeah. somebody who knew a membrane and reading the papers. It wasn't mm -hmm. just all my, I started reading a lot of papers about mm -hmm. it, about the, you know, from people who were chelation experts and saying, well, they're missing the point. This doesn't even get into where the problem is. Mm. And so I 
initially developed the idea that I had to have a hydrophobic chelator that would get into the mitochondria, into the DNA. So, so not only into the cell, but and then into the, the, uh, yeah. the outer and the inner mitochondrial membrane. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and does it go into the nucleus too, I would assume? Well, yeah, I think it does, yeah. yes. Because it's very hydrophobic, it can go about where, it's just, that's the reason mercury is so toxic. Mercury is hydrophobic, it goes right through, it's uncharged, it's a gas. Mm -hmm. It goes right through the biomembrane, and so you Merc have to have a chelator that does the same thing. Mercury is a gas in the body? It's not, float, it's not ions floating around? It's, no. It's, it's well, no, 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 it starts out as a gas. It goes in as HG0 when you breathe mercury vapor. Okay. And then it, it goes wherever it wants. Well, this is from your amalgams. Yeah. But if you're eating fish, it's not going to be a gas. No, no. then it will be methylmercury, but it's the same thing. Methylmercury is also membrane permeable. Mm -hmm. It goes right through membranes because it binds. It's uh, CH3HG+, plus, mm -hmm. but it's in the, in the blood. There's a high level of chloride, and chloride binds that negative charge, so you end up with some of the uh, Hg uh, methylmercury in mm -hmm. a chloride form that can go right through the membrane because it's uncharged. Okay, yeah. And that's the reason it gets into the brain so effectively. And, and it's interesting, as a chemist, you can, you can understand this, and it's just like second nature to you, but that really is the core of understanding how you get molecules inside the cell and into the body because you know if it has a charge it's not going in it's just yeah. it, you it, unless you have some a liposome or something to, to diffuse it in but you, it's just well, see, uh, you know enough but if you're trying to tear your brain infection the yeah. hardest thing is to get the plus blood brain barrier you know, yeah. get past it it's tough to do and but it's a it's not a two-way street i mean i mean you get something in i mean you can like mercury vapor can cross into the brain mm -hmm. But then in the, in the brain or in any tissue, mm -hmm. it gets converted to Hg2 plus by an enzyme called catalase or similar to catalase. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes very toxic and it's charged and then it won't go out. It does, go it, out. does it bind to the proteins in the tissue too? Oh, yeah, that's sure. what I would think. And that, uh, so it's a covalent bond. It, uh, the, the mercury thiol bond is considered a partial covalent bond okay. according to chemists. Okay. Very tight. Okay. Very difficult to get it off. Uh, and uh, I mean like EDTA has a very high affinity for mercury, but EDTA does not have a high enough affinity to pull mercury off of thiol bonds and proteins. Interesting. You can't and, do it. But you, it's more designed for lead, I would yeah, think. It is. Yeah. yeah, and it's, and it's, and that's because it's all oxygen. If you want yeah. to get mercury off of a thiol, you have to have uh, another thiol, and preferably a diethyl like I've made. Okay. And the, so, so we. All right, so the, the, you're jumping into the future. So <laughs> you, the, okay. continue this, the the <laughs> journey. Yeah. Well, anyway, the, the thing that got affected me the most was going and talking, trying to get the government to help these, uh, one, to make them get rid of the Marisol yeah. and vaccines mm -hmm. and not expose babies to mercury at all. And that was hard. I mean, it was just, it was like talking to a block of salt. Mm -hmm. our, our compound, uh, our vaccines are totally safe and don't tell us that it's not. I mean, how, how dare you say that? Well, I've just got a PhD in chemistry. I've been funded by NIH by 20 years. I've had a lot of experience. I think I have a, that too. And when I talk to you guys, you don't know a damn bit of chemistry. And I'm talking about the, the leaders at the CDC. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. know no chemistry. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure there's somebody in there at a lower level, but the people I talk to, if they knew any chemistry, they kept it a secret. <laughs> and so, uh, but anyway, I testified in front of the Institute of Medicine. And I told them, if the first time I did in 2002, I said, if indeed, vaccines cause autism, it's the ethyl mercury. And I gave them that story about the 1977 thing, mm -hmm. saying that infants don't excrete 
uh, mercury very well. Mm -hmm. They build it up in their bodies, and I've published several papers since then proving that. And uh, but anyway, the, I, I, I wasn't having any, and people were treating these babies with DMPS and DMSA and getting horrible results. And uh, I, I don't know, one night I was sitting at home, true story, I have a daughter who has a PhD in molecular biology and uh, toxicology. And she called me up and she was uh, writing her PhD thesis. And she said she found a, a site on the website that mentioned me, and it wasn't very complimentary, to say the least. And she was calling me up and she was kind of sad and, you know, teary, teary and, and it made me angry. That, you know, I just let those people go and say the things, but then all of a sudden it was getting out of the realm of just my thick skin. Mm -hmm. you know, my, and so I decided, I just I remember sitting there that night, very vivid in my mind. You know, I sat down with a glass of red wine, turned the lights out and just sat there and said, well, how, do I, how do I win? I can't out-PR these guys. Mm -hmm. You can't out-PR the CDC. Like no, the no, no, no. Like the flu vaccine right now they're talking about. There's a big article out today by Robert, the Mercury Project, Robert Kennedy saying, and the very honest thing, flu, the flu vaccine doesn't work, and the F, the CDC lies about how many people. Sure. Are and and I thought, how kind of well, there's the there's only, there's massive industrial sure. industry lobbying support on sure. the federal regulatory agencies. But anyway, that that was the night I decided, you know, I'm a chemist, I make things, I'm going to make a better chelator, and that's the only way I win. Okay, so when you came to that conclusion, that was the motivation to, to to take a different path. And provide a solution rather than try to change it at the core and have the, the re federal regulatory agencies actually ban this thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you would if you were back in 1920. Yeah. You didn't need uh, a chelator for mercury because nobody was injecting it into their bodies, some in their mouths. But children, there weren't very many. Well, and it, it was still early in the, in the Industrial Revolution, and sure. a lot of coal wasn't being burnt and, sure. and released into the atmosphere. And the coal, as I understand it, is loaded with mercury, too. Yeah, mercury sulfide. Yeah. And uh, it actually was the biggest contribution. Now I think it's becoming less so with, uh, yeah. with green power revolution yeah. and, and anyway, the decreased reliance on coal. It was that time I decided, well, what it is, none of these uh, chelators they have are working. Mm -hmm. And so I, and I, so I sat down and I started thinking about it. And I had all these thoughts. I mean, it wasn't like I just sat down and all of a sudden a big light went off. But I, I started working on the problem. And okay. I knew I knew. What year was this? This would be about uh, 2002. Okay. And so I started uh, then, and I wrote a grant, and I got uh, some funding uh, to try and make uh, uh, chelators that would enter the cells. That was the thing I was sitting on. Okay. And, uh, then uh, I also in our graduate program where I was chairman, mm -hmm. there was a guy there, uh, David Atwood, that was uh, working on uh, getting mercury, collecting the mercury that's coming off from coal-fired power plants mm -hmm. and other sources of environmental. And one of his students had made this compound, and, and you know I, I was uh, setting in on his. I mean, I sat on on every graduate mm -hmm. student thesis, and, and I saw that compound, and, and I thought that's what I need is something because it didn't work. Oh, it didn't work in the, that application? Yeah, because it wasn't water-soluble. Ah. So it floated on top of the water, and it just didn't do what it was supposed to do, because, but it was exactly But it was, perfect, it was perfect for you, yeah. your application. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was there. And so I, I uh, uh, started working on it biologically. He was, he was not a biological chemist. He didn't want to do the, any of the biochemistry thing. And so uh, I started searching for it, and not only, we made a lot of mercury analog binding compounds similar to it and uh, not knowing which ones. And then it's called follow your nose research. Mm -hmm. You know, first of all, you say, 
if you're going to use a chelator, the first thing it has to be not toxic itself. Yeah. I mean, that's one. So I, so I, I had all these uh, rats uh, set up in a Walmart type uh, cages and everything, and I would, uh, you know, inject them with these compounds and uh, see if it killed them. If it killed them, it was out of it. If it didn't <laughs> kill one, and you know, make a long story short, it didn't take us very long to find out that what what type of compound would work. That would it had to be hydrophobic, so it could pass the blood-brain barrier. Uh, and get into cells, go through lipid bilayers, and it had to be non-toxic. Yeah. And so. So, at the basis of your discovery, though, was yeah. what the graduate student initially proposed, or did you yeah. revise that one, or was yeah. it, did you use that molecule? Pardon? Did you revise the molecule he had proposed? Revise the synthesis of okay. it, but not not the, not necessarily the molecule. It's the same. Matter of fact, you can make several molecules similar to mine. Okay. I mean, anybody that's a good chemist could do that. Mm -hmm. uh, the chemistry of this is not really rocket science. I mean, it's not that hard. Okay, so if you just simplify it so that people understand, because this is really an important innovation. I mean, it really is crucial to a, a very challenging and pervasive problem. Well, in doing the, the search of this compound, we started injecting it into rats under the flab of their skin. Mm -hmm. Subcutaneous. And, and, and I started increasing the dose every day. You know, I'd give them 200 micrograms, uh, mi micromoles per kilogram body weight, and then we'd go up to 300, then to 400, then to 600, and finally I went up to 1,500. And the things we know These are milligrams or micrograms? Micrograms. micrograms. Micromoles okay. per kilogram body weight okay. is at that time. Okay. It's not micrograms. But anyway, the thing we noticed is that the rats that were, that were getting the chelator, uh, we called them show rats. They, they were developed this nice shiny coat like a show dog. And, <laughs> And the ones that weren't getting it had this kind of a light yellow, you know, grungy skin. And they weren't at all affected by injecting that to compound. So we knew we had a compound that wasn't toxic, and we had a compound that if it could get near the mercury in the right place, it would bind it irreversibly. Mm -hmm. Because that's the other thing that the, the uh, that we showed, they showed at the University of Kentucky in the, the, the Atwood Laboratory, was that these compounds bond mercury very, very tightly. And the difference is, with DMSA, it'd be like if I'm to, trying to catch a basketball, and I can only move my hands this far apart. Mm -hmm. I can't catch that basketball because I got. You want with mercury, you want to make two bonds to it. Yeah, it has, yeah. And so what we what was done with those com this compound, what I really liked it is it's on two extended arms, and they cause uh -huh. the degrees of freedom of rotation. So these so it arms binds one, and then the other one clamps on. Yeah. It's caught, yeah. and so it doesn't they, move. And, it's and, and it partially covalent bond in that, in that yeah, molecule too. too? Okay. And when it does this to a mercury atom, if you look at mercury sulfide mm -hmm. or cinnabar, it's all HGS. Now they write it down HGS, like there's one atom of mercury to one atom of salt. That's the ratio. But if you look at the uh, at cinnabar or mercury sulfide, it's a polymer. Mm -hmm. HG to an S, and that S to another HG, and that HG to another S. Mm -hmm. So it's not H, there's not a such there's no such thing in, in nature probably. It's just an HGS alone. Okay. I mean it doesn't form, uh, you know, it, it can't get around it's, it, just the same problem. So it's not molecules, it's yeah. multi, mostly polymers. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, the, uh, this compound, and I, the more I looked at it, and the more I read about it, and the more we tested it, uh, the, the more interesting the molecule became. For example, I looked at it and I thought, this compound has to be a very good antioxidant. If you look at it, it looks like it has two glutathione. Glutathione has two arm, has an arm with an SH on it. Mm -hmm. That's why your body uses to take mercury out. Mm -hmm. And so I was very enthralled with the fact that we had this molecule that had two 
glutathione type arms sticking out. Does glutathione have one asetch? Just one. Just one. And it from, forms, is it from it forms, cysteine? It forms a, sac, a, a sandwich complex like DMPS and DMSA to get mercury out. But two glutathione molecules. Yeah. To, to get one mercury molecule, yeah. okay. And so, uh, <clears throat> uh, we we I, 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 I tested it. I had my daughter who was uh, had a position at the University of Utah at that time, looking at oxidative stress, and she tested it and she said, "Dad, this is a very potent antioxidant." And I, so then I thought, well, then nobody's going to believe my daughter. So I sent it off to uh, Brunswick Laboratories mm -hmm. and had them check it out for its uh, OREC score, the oxygen radical absorbance capacity, which they do for every mm -hmm. uh, anti antioxidant. And I found out that something like resveratrol would be 15,000 per 100 grams. Our compound was something like 200 to 300,000 mm. per 100 grams. And, Nothing. And what, Nothing. Do you, what do you think was given its antioxidant capacity? Because it, it doesn't seem like it would be an antioxidant. Well, no, what to me? I mean, why is that? Well, I don't know. I'm, well, I'm missing it. Has it. Two, it has two oh, because of the SH. Two SH. Just like glutathione. Yeah. Okay, that was and, it. And, and glutathione, you know, scavenges what it does is scavenges hydroxy radicals. Oh, so it's scavenging the oxidant molecules. Yes, it does okay. that. That's that's its second. It it chelates heavy metals that. Okay, I was thinking more of the metals rather than no. the the oxidant no. free radicals. No, we, we we've tested that and we showed that it. It exhibits its antioxidant activity by one molecule of NBMI scavenges three hydroxy-free radicals. Okay, let, 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 this is a slight little tangent, yeah. but the thought not too long ago, and some people still hold, which I think is incorrect, is that just giving antioxidants is a good thing because free radical damage, you want to limit them. But the, the, what ignored in that philosophy is that some free radicals are important biological signaling molecules. And if you indiscriminately suppress that signal, you can cause biological damage. So I'm wondering, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so enthralled with using hormetic uh, antioxidants that essentially activate molecular pathways like FOXO3A, NRF2, that cause your body to make these antioxidants in, when you need them, like mm -hmm. SOD and catalase and glutathione. Myeloperoxidase. Myeloperoxidase, right. That's one you've got to have. Yeah. So does this molecule develop with this strong antioxidant capacity, does it indiscriminately suppress these free radicals, or does it have some type of wisdom to appropriately seek out the bad guys? Well, you know, I don't know that it does. Okay. I mean, all you do is you test. Yeah. Okay, and in testing this, the problem with most antioxidants, they work in a test tube. Like resveratrol. Mm -hmm. sure. why, why doesn't it uh, work in the body that well? And it, it, people say, well, it does. It depends on who's selling it and how they're arguing it. Yeah. But the bottom line is it gets cleared by the kidneys from the blood, and it doesn't get inside the cells very effectively. And, so, and it's always been a conundrum with certain people that say, why is something with a high OREC score not always a good antioxidant in the body? Well, the I don't know that that's such a good example because resveratrol's really primary purpose is used to to activate sirtuin-1, mm -hmm. and sirtuin-1 requires NAD as a cofactor, and mm -hmm. if you're NAD depleted, for, which could happen from a variety, NAD plus specifically, from a variety of factors, then it's not gonna work, no matter how much resveratrol you have. You can't, mm -hmm. you know, it's, okay, okay. Yeah, it's yeah, like trying to right put your gas pedal on something and there's, there's, you know, you're missing an engine or something. But the only point I wanna make is that if you look at all the foods that have 
ORAC scores. Mm -hmm. There's no correlation between the ORAC score and how well they work in the body to elevate your right. glutathione levels because they don't get inside. Yeah. It's just the same thing with chelators. You know, yeah. Now, it's, yeah, it's true if it's yeah. resveratrol, too. It's, it's not actually really well absorbed. And there are resveratrol alternatives like terostilidine mm -hmm. that has methyl groups that allow it to penetrate a lot better. Well, anyway, that uh, we send it off. And, and, and when I was, I was writing it, and I hired a, an ex head of the FDA legal branch. Mm -hmm. He retired, and he was working uh, in a law firm in Boston to help me uh, get the NBMI. At that time, we called it, well, we called it uh, NBMI at that time. It was a, it's a chemical abbreviation of the, of the drug, uh, the chemical name of it. And anyway, he told me, he, he and I were writing this thing to send in uh, to the FDA to say, you know, to try and get orphan drug or something like that. And he told me, he said, Dr. Haley, don't you realize, because I told him about the oxidative stress, mm -hmm. the FDA doesn't care what your compound does, they care what you claim it does. Absolutely. He said, he said, you know, you could start selling this tomorrow. And I was in a hurry to get it out for the parents of autistic children, mm -hmm. and the autistic children themselves, of course. And I said, you mean, if I just say this is an antioxidant? He said, yeah, you can sell it as a, a, a food additive, mm -hmm. as an antioxidant. Just don't mention the mercury. They, they're telling you there's no mercury. Oh, yeah. One when you mention a claim, you, yeah, you, they're going to take it to prison. And so I didn't, because they were saying there was no mercury in their bodies to start with. So I mm -hmm. wasn't trying. I was, I, mean, I was going off of what they were yeah. saying. And so we uh, sold it for two years as a dietary antioxidant. And primarily, and the uh, name of that product at that time, oxidative oh. stress relief OSR. OSR, okay. Yeah. And it worked great. Not in in two years. And that, not, what years were those? That would be uh, two thousand eight to ten. Okay. Because we made it in two thousand six and had all the studies back that mm -hmm. it was not toxic and that it prevented mercury death. Mm -hmm. from, I knew all that at that time, but I just didn't talk about it because that means I was making a medical claim. Mm -hmm. Uh, we even changed the name of our company from Keylater Technologies Incorporated to just CTI Science mm -hmm. uh, uh, because we didn't want to make a claim that it was a sure, Keylater. Sure. Because then, then we, we would be violating the FDA rule. But anyway, in two years, it never had one single, and we had an adverse effect reporting system, mm -hmm. the same one that's used by Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati. They never had one single adverse effect that was significant reported to that system. People would say it made my son go to the bathroom, pee too much, is mm -hmm. what they would say, and or that there would be this, they would be missing some capsules in the packaging. But nobody comes and said I had to go to the doctor and I had to do that, uh, and uh, that was for quite some time. And so I was shut down by the FDA, but there wasn't, in, in, and there wasn't any. In 2010. Yeah, in 2000. All right, so you, I'm curious as to why they did that because you were aware of, that, of the restrictions on the making claims, and you, you supposedly had not made any claims. I right? did not make any claims. I mean, so so not, then, why did they shut you down? Somebody complained, and I, and I, I mean, I, ha I have strong opinions about who it mm -hmm. was, mm -hmm. but I know the one group that was involved would be the neurodiversity group mm -hmm. that thought that autism was a gift from God and just a different type of person. Mm -hmm. They just didn't see the autistic children I saw. Okay. You know, and, uh, but I think more than likely it was uh, uh, the pediatric element. Mm. They were making a lot of money giving vaccines and they didn't want to see the ba well baby visits go down because of Well, autism. making a lot of money would be 
a, a subjective evaluation. Yeah. You know, from my experience as a physician, you know, pediatricians are one of the least paid, and I, yeah. I'm pretty confident that they did not go into medicine to make money. They, they, they don't make much money at all. I, but I they, agree. but they firmly believe what they're doing is right, and they're, they're, in my view, brainwashed. That, and, and, and they're passionate about it because they really think they're doing good. I mean, to their core. I mean, they give their own kids. You know, I mean, they're they're not. They, it's not like they know that the, that what they're doing is bad. The only thing I can tell you is that the people who have attacked me. Yeah, but I mean, they could and, be. And, they and, could yeah. be pediatricians. No, no doubt about it, because they're yeah. so vehemently passionate about um, protecting what they perceive as a valuable resource to to prevent disease. Yeah, and they could also say because then you have to have well-behaved visits. And yeah, well, and I know you don't want to believe that, but I, mean, I mean it's possible. But I would think, and it's probably true for some. But I would, I would think it's certainly not the majority. Well, I, I don't know who did it. Yeah, yeah. somebody complained to the FDA, and I went to a very prominent lawyer who uh, helps people with uh, nutrition's. You probably know him. I don't, I don't have permission to say his name, so I won't. Sure. But he's he's been in front of the Supreme Court several times about in Illinois. Was it, was it Illinois attorney or was this? A, oh, I know who it was. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And he told me he said, Doctor Haley, when they shut me down, I said, this is silly. I mean, yeah. This is this is uh, what they're they're excuse me. The compound has in its structure dicarboxybenzoate, which is found in cranberries, and cystamine, which is on the terminal end of uh, coenzyme A, and it's just cysteine without the carboxylic acid group. It's a natural product. Mm -hmm. Two natural products, just like slow release niacin. Mm -hmm and uh, in acetylcysteine. You have to make it chemically, it doesn't exist naturally, but it's made of two natural products. And I read the site, and, and I had the lawyer, who mm -hmm. was an FDA expert, read it, and he said, you know, this can be, it can be a natural product and a supplement if it contains a, uh, any one of a natural product or any combination of two. Mm -hmm. That's what it said. And then they changed that. Uh, it's called the, we call it the Boyd-Haley rule now. In our, <laughs> they said, not if you put it together chemically. Well, uh, it means that slow-release niacin should not be. Okay. Yeah. So they, they targeted you, essentially, and changed the rules to make their targeting effective. Yeah. And uh, the, the lawyer, who's very prominent, he said, Dr. Haley, I'll take your case, and I'll win it. You're right. What you've said, we can make them look like look very mm -hmm. foolish in court. And you will win. It'll cost you a million dollars. Mm -hmm. It'll take a year. And in that year, they're going to do everything they can sure. to disrupt your laboratory. And when you win, they're going to charge you with something else. Yeah. He said, do you want to go through this? He said, if I, but I tell you, my advice would be to take it through the drug route. Yeah. Make more money and everything else. And so... Uh, the sad reality. Sad reality, right. Yeah. And so that's what we've done. And we've done it. And, and you know, I think, I really think uh, we need a good... All right. So, so for clarification here. So... The, essentially, with the, the FDA's action shut you down, but they didn't formally do it. You chose to exit the route without any penalties or sure. legal actions yeah. with the FDA because, because of the threats and because of the, the pragmatic business realities that, I don't have that kind of money. you don't have that cash flow to do that. And even if you did, they still could kick you with something else. And, and that was, a, you know, the attorney thought he may have won, but you know, there's no guarantee on that. Mm -hmm. You know, he, oh, sure. he could have spent a million dollars and lost. Yeah, right. Yeah. Then I would be in bad shape. Yeah. Because at one time, I mean, I, I borrowed, uh, I was in debt $900,000 to get that company started. I borrowed it on my ranch and mm -hmm. uh, my farm. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was a, And what was the motivation for that? Was it your strong belief that there was a desperate need for 
a solution to the... Absolutely. It wasn't the... And was it mostly the autistic community or was it the dental community or both or people with neurodegenerative well, diseases? Main, or? Mainly, mainly it was the mothers of autistic children, mm -hmm. especially those that would come up and be so grateful. You could just see this happiness in their face and everything when their child was no longer autistic. Mm -hmm. This compound... And you saw that. You saw... Why don't you sidestep here and share some of the stories that provided the motivation to, to do what mm -hmm. you just described? Well, for example, one lady, and, I, uh, and we're very good friends, but I, I don't, again, I don't mention people's names if I don't sure, know. Sure, sure, sure. But she had a son, his name, and the, his nickname was Adam Baum. Mm -hmm. He was about a 12-year-old autistic that uh, she called me up and I, I, I said, what's all that noise? Sound like she was in a bar fight. And she said, well, it's my son, Adam. He's having a meltdown. Mm -hmm. And she said, I heard you have this compound. And I said, well, sure. And, I, and I, you know, I talked to her a little bit, and I sent it to her. But he was a 12-year-old, and his father and his family, entire family, even his mother, you know, probably six to eight inches taller than me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was the football players. And uh, But Adam uh, was the only one that got vaccinated and uh, turned into a very severe autistic. And so I sent her OSR, and she said once she started giving it to me, she, she, she said it was very common for him to knock her down in the store mm -hmm. if he didn't get what he wanted and to blow up. And he broke a little girl's arm, and he threw a chair through a window, and they told her, you can't bring him back to school anymore. He's too dangerous. Mm -hmm. and Which so is you know, she, appropriate. And you know what, basically, uh, I think the uh, problem with autistic children, one problem, and I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, I don't even play one on TV. So, the uh, main problem they have is they have intense intestinal pain, mm -hmm. which somehow causes them to go into meltdowns. I mean, it would bother anyone. And they don't become potty trained very well. Mm -hmm. And she would tell me he would lay over a couch with his stomach on the end of the couch to get the pressure off of it. And he was not, uh, he couldn't control his bowel movements. Mm -hmm. And so he started taking it. And she told me, and I, I can give you her name, and you can call and talk to her if you want mm -hmm. to. She'll, if she'll, and she said, after, uh, uh, after taking the third or fourth dose, he never ever had a meltdown again. Hmm. Maybe later he did, but at that time she said it all ended. He went back to school, he graduated from high school, he got a job working in a pet shop and uh, sweeping up and stuff like that. He could find his way to work and back. And, he, and I've met him several times, he calls me up, and it's not that it cured everything in his autism. He still mm -hmm. talks sure. a little bit like Forrest Gump. Mm -hmm. But he can call me on the phone and he can say, hi Dr. Haley, how are you? Guess what I did today, and we can have conversations. But he's not violent anymore, hmm. and he's not the pretty he, radical and, improvement. And you you can talk to him enough that he's very good at the uh, what we call them, the, the electronic games. Mm -hmm. Sure. So he's got he's got capability. Uh, this thing. So I don't, you know, the thing that NBMI does is it stops the toxicity and the immediate pain that can be associated with it, but it does not repair. And, and MBI is the name of your new product, is now a drug being sold through a foreign country. It's, it's sold, it's sold uh, uh, we're, we're trying, we were trying to get it approved in the uh, European Medicine, with the European Medicines Association, because at that time people told me the FDA, I mean, I kind of thought the FDA had me marked. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way they treated me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you would not have much doubt about it if you had been in my shoes and the way they came in. Uh, and the way they uh, talked to us, uh, although they were they were very professional. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, nobody called me a dirty name or anything like sure. that. Sure. But the threat was there, and mm -hmm. they went through everything. I mean, every computer, every file, uh, and it bothered them when they went through the uh, uh, our uh, adverse effects reporting system that there was nothing in there. Mm. And but they did not want to look. 
and they did not. That's the only pile of papers they didn't go through was the pile of papers that I had collected off of email that I printed out, you know, to show that the compound was working. Not for them. I had this. I was just doing this for my own benefit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, there was a lot of people who had an email to say how much it had helped them. I mean, it stopped tremor. Mm -hmm. Even in our study with the uh, uh, Ecuadorian gold miners, so I think it was seven out of eight that had workplace tremors, lost their workplace tremors, taking NBMI, even though they were still working in a high mercury environment. Mm -hmm. And I have noticed that with a lot of people. Was and, this this was OSR or NBI? Yeah. No, this was the NBMI. NBMI. We've NBMI. done a NBMI. phase two study. Oh, okay. First of all, going when, did, when did all that start? When did, did when did so what you just related was the 2008 to 2010 experience where they, yeah. and the FDA came in in 2010, 2011, yeah. and then you transitioned to developing a, a, it's a drug. drug. So, and the new drug has a different name than OSR. Yeah. Same called, chemical. It's but called Amerimid. Amerimid. E-M-E-R-A-M-I-D-E. And uh, that's the API, the active pharmaceutical ingredient in the capsules, which are called Erminex. That's drug. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I have to do that for drug mm -hmm. reasons. Uh, but anyway, the, we then a, after we, I applied for orphan drug to use this compound as a chelator for mercury mm -hmm. because neither the European Medicines Agency nor the FDA have a treatment for mercury toxicity. Interesting. It's, I mean, they, I mean, it's, it's crazy not to because I mean it's an occupational health exposure hazard. They what they'll tell you, and so we did that, and we got it. By the way, we're both we're orphan drug designated in both the United States and uh, in the uh, EU. And so that's... So it's that, legally available in the United States? No, it's, it's not. It's a, no, it's just, it just it, you, you get things done cheaper. You, don't, you can get help. You can, it's, it's to help small companies that are trying to develop okay. a drug that so. needs to be developed according to the Innovative Task Force of the European Medicines Agency. Mm -hmm. They need. They have problems with mercury toxicity. One end of the government doesn't agree with the other end. So what's the help? Is it less... Less, less, less cost, less, less, less uh, aggressive requirements on the phase one, two, and three clinical trials. Yeah, and, so and, le and, and less costly. When you go to them, they don't charge as much money. Okay. To review your papers and things like that, so it's a good deal. I mean, it's a, it's a very helpful thing. And so we did that, and we uh, so we got it started, and we took it through all the animal trials that they requested that we do. The compound has, uh, uh, you know, you have to go to incredibly high levels to have an effect on an animal. Mm -hmm. I mean, a hundred times more than you would ever give a human being. Mm -hmm. I mean, like we put four to five milligrams per kilogram body weight to treat a person for mercury toxicity, and uh, we're giving these uh, animals a minimum 290 milligrams per kilogram body weight mm -hmm. to make them sick, and a thousand, and some animals don't get sick at all. Mm -hmm. Humans don't. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's different with you, but there's nothing in there that it's not reversible, not something you stop and that goes away. Mm -hmm. it's, it's totally safe. It's safer than aspirin. And so we did all that, and then we got permission to do a phase one study in Sweden, mm -hmm. and that's where you give the drug uh, in uh, single doses uh, for a period of time and go up higher and higher, and then you give multiple doses where you give it for a week, and, and then each time, you, they're very careful. I mean, you have to you go up. So we got up to where we're giving 600 milligrams a day for two weeks on, on in a, a phase one study in humans with no adverse effects at all. Hmm. I mean, nothing happened. 600 milligrams is way more than you ever need to take. 300 would be a, a, a good amount. Okay. Because you can calculate how much it gets in the blood. And with that, what they call it, uh, safety and pharmacokinetic study, mm -hmm. the phase one, you take it orally, it peaks in your blood within two hours, 
and about 60 to 80 percent, depending upon each person, it's a little different, is absorbed. Hmm. And it, it gets into, uh, on the test animals, we showed that it did the same thing, and that it concentrates and it peaks in all tissues of the body at the same time, two hours. It gets in the brain. Now, you'll get more in the kidney and the liver than you'll get in the brain, but it does get into the brain. Hmm. And it crosses the blood-brain barrier, and uh, it's effective uh, in eliminating uh, iron out of the brain of experimental animals. Sounds like it would be a good treatment also for hemochromatosis. Uh, the, so you finished phase one trials in Sweden. Have you started as phase two and three? We've done phase two, and uh, we've done phase two uh, on the Ecuadorian mm-hmm. bull miners, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll show you the data tomorrow. It definitely decreased the mercury level in 10 of 11 that were very high mm-hmm. uh, miners. I mean, their mercury, urinary mercury levels dropped dramatically, uh, and their blood levels went down also. Mm. But the problem was, in the placebo group, they were going out, to, I mean, they come in, they take their, their drug, our drug, and the placebo, and then they go out and they burn gold. Yeah. And so the, the placebo group was up and down like this, whereas all of the ones that took the 300 milligrams just dropped dramatically. Yeah. And yeah. so we And for those who aren't know, mercury is used to, in the mining of gold, to refine and purify Artesian it. Artesian miners. See, they yeah, so that's, they have ma- that's why you did the trials down there, because they have such massive mercury exposures. Yeah, it was the people at the uh, EMA advisory group that told us to go to South America or Africa, someplace mm-hmm. where the mine gold and on those people. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing was, now, the adverse effects, the non-significant adverse effects, as they call it, stomach ache, headaches, mm-hmm. diarrhea, mm-hmm. and noise, were dramatically uh, improved in those that took the drug. Mm-hmm. And mercury does all those things. That's some of their, the toxic mm-hmm. side effects. The problem with mercury is there's no endpoint that you can point at that the FDA will say they'll accept as a proof that you've done it. Sure. Because 22 of 25, or some number like that, of the, the uh, toxic effects, the endpoints of mercury toxicity are the same as Lyme's disease. And so they, and when we were talking, sure. can we do this? Like tremor. Yeah. You eliminate tremor, people working in a mine, that's probably caused by mercury, not by a tick in the North America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, won't, they said, no, that won't work because that could be, that could be caused by something else. Hmm. How many things cause you to have a tremor? Yeah. I mean, now, how is the mercury excreted once you've taken this chemical? Is it, it binds to it effectively? This, You're this, really clear about that. Is it excreted through the urine? Is it no. sweated out or no. well, a stool? It, it, stool. Okay. It, it goes through, we, we've tested this, we've looked at the SIP enzymes mm-hmm. of the P450 system mm-hmm. and the mercury NBMI complex, which when it binds to it, it never lets go. Mm-hmm. It's very inert. It, just yeah, sits right. it doesn't do anything. The toxicity is eliminated very quickly when you mm-hmm. take NBMI. Okay. But to get rid of the mercury, it has to go, you, you uh, oxidize the benzene ring, mm-hmm. you put a hydroxyl group on there, just like you would benzene. And that's done typically in the liver. And then glutathione S transferase, which I know you know what that is, yeah. puts glutathione on that, and then it gets carried out in the fecal route. Okay. And that's where it goes out. It goes out in animals. When you give them NBMI, it shifts it from and going it, out. It's not reabsorbed in the in colon? Because sometimes for you're doing a detox program, you need to use a binder like char- activated charcoal or chitosan. No, you, you don't have to do that with this. Be- it goes out. I, and because I it's, it's not reabsorbed. It could be, but I don't. not most of it. Okay. I mean, because it goes out. It, you, we've launched it in the brain, liver, mm-hmm. kidney, and it takes a longer time, like a, a month, and it's all out. About a month is most of it's out. But this is after taking regular daily doses? This is taking... Or just one dose? Just one dose. Wow. This, that's the one side. Uh, 
but also I have made the mercury NBMI complex in a test tube, in a mm -hmm. reaction flask. And I sent that to Southern Research Institutes, which does all the toxicity mm -hmm. study, can do it of drugs. And they gave 2,000 milligrams per kilogram body weight. And with that, half the weight, so 1,000 milligrams of that would be mercury. Mm -hmm. That would kill a lot of rats. Mm -hmm. And when you did that, there was no toxicity, even though some of it wow. was absorbed. Yeah. It's totally without toxicity if you make it ahead of time and ingest it into the bodies. Yeah. That's the reason we think it should be used in the... Uh, All right, so even if it was reabsorbed, it would be a non-issue because no, it's not toxic. It's not toxic. Yeah. And see, the, 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 it's reabsorbed with glutathione. It goes out as a glutathione. Yeah, yeah. Because th those are amino acids. You clip it off, you metabolize to, res to try and uh, salvage some glutathione. Wow. This compound is not susceptible to that. Wow. So let's talk about some of, the, some of the other exciting applications. You've already discussed two, which is one is in autistic children, the other is in those who've been exposed through mercury from their metal amalgams and filling. But then we also have other neurodegenerative diseases. Yes. You know, we've got Alzheimer's, as you mentioned earlier, but also ALS mm -hmm. uh, and Parkinson's disease and Huntington's, uh, and probably a few others that I'm missing. But, but can, you, can you talk about those? Yes, because it's now being used uh, extensively in uh, foreign countries, mm -hmm. not Europe, not the United States. The United States makes it very difficult to do that. Mm -hmm. But they've used it on people uh, that have two of them, are, uh, I can tell you, are ALS and uh, atypical Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. Now, before we ever changed it, back mm -hmm. in 2009 or 10, we uh, used it as a dietary antioxidant, a doctor in the Lexington, Kentucky area, treated a person that could not, was in a wheelchair, couldn't walk, and couldn't talk, and her head flipping back and forth, and within one month, she came back into him, and she says, I want to take more of that drug because it's helping me a lot, and I know that's what it was because it's the only thing. And she was diagnosed with atypical Parkinson's at the Mayo Clinic, mm -hmm. and then so we doubled her, the amount. We took her from 100 milligrams a day to 200 milligrams a day. And the next time she came into the doctor's office, she got up out of the chair and jumped up and down in front of him to show him how much better her balance had gotten. Wow. And you don't get better from that. Mm -hmm. And the same thing has happened recently with an ALS patient who's come to visit me, and he happens to be a medical doctor, mm -hmm. diagnosed at uh, a major medical center in the mm -hmm. East Coast, and sent, told to go home and get his life in straight because he's not going to make it. Yeah, because there's, there's essentially no con conventional treatment for ALS, no. just palliative. But the treatment that got him out was I had a medical doctor who bought a lot of OSR mm -hmm. and the capsules. So this stuff this was This was back from two, yeah, you know, eight years old, 10 yeah. years old. Yeah. Eight years, at least eight to 10 years old. Yeah. And he had a, a package of that left and he gave it to him. And the guy's- Just one package. Him, <laughs> one package, three, three capsules, all I had left. Yeah. And th then this doctor who had the ALS drove up to Kentucky to talk to me. He said, I could tell at the end of, day four or five, all of a sudden there was finger feeling coming back in my right hand. He said, so I knew that the, this was doing something for me. He says, I kept taking it. And then he went back to uh, this doctor. I would like to mention their names because the, they deserve the credit. Not yeah, 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 yeah. I don't sure. Patient. But anyway, to make a long story short, this guy uh, is uh, just about devoid of any ALS symptoms now. That's quite remarkable. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, and I can't say it would work for everyone, but I, yeah. I think what it does say is that what we have to do 
is you have to get it out of Boyd Haley's hands. You yeah. have to get it in the hands of medical doctors that treat sick people. Well, it, it seems like it's something most people could benefit from, even if you're not suffering from symptoms. Uh, well, because, I mean, and I mean, the only issue is that you've essentially established that there's no toxicity. Oh, and that we have I mean, a pervasive. I've been, taking, I've been taking it since about 2006, about every day. Wow. How, what's your dose? I pour it in my hand. Yeah? Because you can't overdose on it. Yeah, yeah. And I'd say about 200 to 300 milligrams a day. Just once a day? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, to take it with food or? I mean, I'm 78 years old and I don't have much of a tremor at all. Matter of fact, none if I, except I'm sitting here talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, I notice a lot of good things about the compound. I took it yeah. when I was chairman of chemistry. Mm -hmm. And you know, you have these, uh, they're not really panic attacks, but you know, when you say, did I write that letter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and so, you know, and you, and you have, and you have to stop and think. When I started doing it, I lost all that. Yeah. I mean, I could just say, did I write oh, yeah, yeah, you know, it impresses me too. One of the reasons I wanted to interview you, because I, I had, I heard you speak many years ago, uh, probably 10 years ago or so. And I knew you were getting up there. I didn't realize your exact age, but 78. But your cognitive ability for a 78-year-old is really remarkable. I mean, it, 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 is, it is truly, in my view, shocking. Yeah. The other, the other thing I is, mean, you know, I mean, I believe in science and looking at it. And yeah. anecdotal stories are hints. Mm -hmm. And that's what I yeah. talk about with these people. Sure, sure. Atypical Parkinson's and uh, uh, ALS. They're hints. I mean, that, that's, that's the best thing to say. They're case studies. Mm -hmm. And you take those and you say, is it really real? You have to do, I mm -hmm. know about end values and statistics, and mm -hmm. I think you should do that. It should be done. Yeah. But the problem is we have such a regulatory system that takes forever. Yeah, For example, yeah. I've given this to two friends. Mm -hmm. Well, three. One kind of my sister and two other older people that I, I don't know very well at all. Mm -hmm. They had COPD, but they were ambulatory. It totally wiped out their, uh, and, and they were doing the blood oxygen mm -hmm. thing. And they go the pu they go, pulse oximetry? Yeah they, yeah, they go up from, you know, 85, 88, up to 98, mm. taking this compound. And, you know, the I think uh, emphysema uh, and the COPD is a lot, caused a lot by toxic metals from smoking, mm. which makes it. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about earlier when we were yeah. outside about yeah. the cadmium that they intentionally put in there to make the cigarettes burn slower. slower. The paper, yeah. yeah. And anyway. <clears throat> But they, they came out, so we've done this study. And of course, in their thing, they said we had to do, uh, we did a phase two study on COPD patients, giving them a very large amount, over two week people. Mm -hmm. And the main reason, that these were people that already had uh, major lung dysfunction. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, they couldn't blow, I mean, the, the, uh, they were gold up to four almost. And so it doesn't repair lungs, mm -hmm. it stops the toxicity. Mm -hmm. But they made it do it on these really sick patients to make sure our compound wasn't toxic to COPD people. Yeah. So I'm wondering, uh, I didn't realize that you were ta you've been taking this every day for the last 12 years, essentially. Uh, so what is, what is your rationale or just, not justification, just, why are you doing it? What's your, what's your motivation? Well, uh, basically, I've gone to my medical doctor. I've gone for physical like mm -hmm. everyone else, and I mm -hmm. have I had me medical problems of aging like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And uh, the one thing I did when I went into to the doctor, and he was pointing out that you know I mean I was uh, getting up there, and there was some problems that he thought I was having too much internal fat, mm -hmm. you know, and I was, and that my diet was terrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, my diet Typical. is beer and steak and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, standard American diet. And yeah, and, yeah, I, and you're, I've changed. I've changed. <laughs> has helped. Your diet makes a big difference. Yeah. I would tell everybody, wise up about your diet. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, I told him I wanted him to do a, a glutathione level. 
blood glutathione. Oh, okay. And, I, and he says, I, we don't do that. I said, well, you are with me. And he says, I said, why don't you do that? He said, because we can't do anything about it. <laughs> and I said, well, I, I'll tell you where to send it. Yeah, Just yeah. pull the blood and send it. And I have the uh, blood glutathione levels of a teenager. Oh, really high. since you've been taking it. Oh, yeah. I okay. Mean, I, I, well, uh, and uh, and is uh, that because the, the, that you have a glutathione mimic or mimetic, or is it because it actually increases your internal glutathione levels? Oh, there you go. DMIs, okay, that's the reason. Taking up the hydroxy free radicals, okay. you're not worrying about that. Okay. And that, that comes back to the point you were bringing up while ago. You know, you don't want to get rid of all your hydroxy free radicals. No, you need some. They're they're really important. <laughs> they really are. Yeah, if you squash squelch them all, it's going to be a problem. Yeah, but I can tell you since I've been taking it, uh, I haven't had one case of a bad cold or Gosh. anything like that. And my wife, who was a nurse, had to take the flu vaccine every year. Would get the flu shortly after getting the flu vaccine every year, she started taking this. She hasn't had that a flu is, That's just an incredible story. I mean, because... No, you know, it is, unless you look at the science. No, I, I understand, but it's just a, a powerful testimony yeah. of the effectiveness of this yeah. strategy. Because, you know, the best way to get rid of uh, the, the most potent antiviral agent in a plant ship, when you're growing cells that can be infected with the influenza virus, you know, the best thing you can add to it that's totally safe and totally prevents a viral infection. Vitamin C? Scorpic acid? No. Glutathione. Glutathione, oh, okay. And the, and then when I went back and I read it, this is papers, you never find them in a medical journal, this is all in research journals. The glutathione well, inserts that sulfur into a disulfide linkage in the coprotein of the virus. And so when oh. the virus gets excreted, it's cleared into the fecal, into the biliary transport system. Wow. In the bottom. Wow. So glutathione locks. The, uh, the further infection down the line. And that's the reason probably why old people are much more susceptible to uh, flu and, and uh, other viral infections uh, versus, say, young children. They don't, because as you get older, your glutathione levels drop off. And I do it just to keep, because I want to have a good quality of life. Wow. I like to hunt and fish. I still go duck hunting. I'm a, I'm a, you can talk to people who hunt with me. I'm a very good shot. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't, haven't, uh, I'm not as good as I was when I was 45, but I'm yeah, good. Yeah. Oh, great. You shotgun? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I train my own dogs. I have a very good Labrador retrievers, and I, and I enjoy doing stuff like that. But, you know, the, the thing is, my key right now is to get it out so doctors can use it. People yeah. like yourself that know more about it, medicine, mm -hmm. and see sick patients. And, uh, because I don't know how mm -hmm. I can detox people, but NBMI does not cause anything in your body to repair. It's not like cysteine that can make more glutathione. This compound doesn't make glutathione. It prevents it from being used up. Yeah. And it prevents it. You don't need you know, it. Because I own to transport out. The I mean, you listen to my lecture, my presentation. Yeah. You know, one of my passions is NAD. And one of the strategies of increasing NAD is to prevent its consumption. <laughs> <laughs> and it, that, for those of there, for the who weren't at my presentation, obviously, it's like avoiding EMFs because it just causes your body to mm -hmm. radically devastate it by use this enzyme called PAR, poly-ADP ribose polymerase. And, so it's the same strategy, similar, yeah. similar process. If yeah. you just preserve what you have and not abuse or use it needlessly, yeah. not needlessly. I mean, yeah. it, his body's pretty wise. So it's a toxic exposure we never had you historically. Your vitamin C, if your glutathione levels go down, the Meister cycle is how you regenerate uh, vitamin C mm -hmm. or glutathione from vitamin C. And we have shown with NBMI that if you put it in a system, we're using vitamin C as an electron donor to measure oxidative stress. Mm -hmm. 
this is they do this for COPD. Sure. When they put in DM, uh, uh, our compound, what happened? You, you know, you're watching the vitamin C levels drop down like that, and you put in our compound, and then all of a sudden you start making more vitamin C. Well. I'm not sure that you're making more. What you do is you is yeah. you're you're yeah. you're reducing it. Yeah, you're reducing it's the reduced form. And the part saying. of the reason for that is because of the uh, it has to do with the glutathione. It's the same issue. You, you, yeah. The oxidative stress is gone. Your NADPH levels are high, and NADPH is what actually reduces right. vitamin C. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that was a surprise to the people. This was oh, done, makes perfect sense. The, yeah. Uh, in London, at King's yeah. College in London, some people working on COPD because we showed that. NBMI, if you throw it in, is the best antioxidant to prevent the oxidative stress in bronchial, wow. alveolar, lavage samples. Okay. And that's the reason we passed. So, for those, now the, the, the name of the website is Ameromed, E M E R E M E R A, not I, E M E R A, med.com. Yeah. And that's a, a website in Ireland, I believe. Well, it's 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 in the United States. Oh, it's in the United States, the but the company itself is is, is is in Ireland, in Ireland right. to avoid the, yeah. the the legal issues yeah. with the FDA. If you go to info at emeramed.com, uh, you'll get that's an email those. address. That's an email. Okay, yeah. they can go there and they'll get they'll get everything about the company and. Uh, uh, and, what, and what's the cost of the, the say a month's worth of treatment? Well, we can't charge for it. We give it away. Okay. But the charge from uh, the people who package it, yeah, and yeah. make it. Is about six hundred dollars for a two weeks treatment. Okay, that's way higher than it should be. But yeah. it, it, we're paying for insurance and mailing, yeah, yeah. and the, the the charge from the Irish Medical Board and things like that. It's not it's not going yeah. to the company at all. Yeah, yeah. So well, it's definitely a better strategy than what's currently available. But are there any plans to lower that cost in the future some well, way? Sure, sure. And what, what, mean, what's I, what's on the horizon? Yeah, when we sold it as a dietary antioxidant, yeah. it was like uh, we sold it to. Uh, doctors for $30 for a month. Wow, so, wow. I mean, <laughs> it's almost now, free. When you make it as a drug, it's a lot more expensive. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, it's uh, definitely not going to be anything like that. Yeah. And what we have to do, the real slowdown here is that if you're going to get a drug approved, you have to show it's non-toxic. You yeah. have to do the phase one study. And then you have to do a phase two study and a phase three study. And those are efficacy. You have mm -hmm. to show your drug works. And so how do you show that your drug is binding mercury in a toxic in a group of Americans, in which none of them, according to the FDA or to science or to the NIH, are mercury toxic, because they say that there's this not you have to be this high in your urine level to be yeah. mercury toxic, and and that is scientifically incorrect because the people that don't excrete mercury have very low urinary and blood levels. Mm -hmm. They build it up in their cells, and that's what goes down. So yeah, that, that's sort of a confusing artifact of the way that we test for toxins, yeah. is that you could be look perfectly normal on diagnostic tests, but you can be loaded with it. Yeah. Well, it's like uh, or it could you know, be high, and it's actually a good thing because you're excreting it. Well, it's, it's, it's that that old thing with the, the Marisol. Mm -hmm. This one guy, uh, in doing research, gave vaccinations and said that that the. Mercury from the marisol in children disappeared from the blood too fast to be toxic. Mm -hmm. Well, it's going into, the, and if you look at the animal studies, when you gave it in the blood, as it went down dramatically in the blood, very quickly, it was building up in the brain, the kidney, and the liver mm -hmm. because it's hydrophobic and that's where it goes. But they were saying, well, since it's not in the blood, it can't be toxic. That was that's like saying alcohol in your blood makes you drunk. Mm -hmm. It's alcohol in your brain that makes you drunk. I mean, that's uh, uh, so. 
I, I sometimes worry about who I'm talking to. And, but right now, that was the major problem in Europe. We tested dentists that worked in Eastern Europe, in Slovenia and places like that, old Yugoslavia, because they worked in operatories that were not ventilated, and they're very sick. But when we had them test, tested to identify a population that we could test in Europe mm -hmm. that would be mercury toxic, we couldn't find very few that yeah. would ever meet the definition by the EMA of what's a mercury toxic person. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a regulatory nightmare, yeah. no question. So we've, we now have found a group in uh, Colombia, South America. A young boy found a liquid, uh, uh, a jar of liquid mercury, took it to his school, shared it with his friends, and in the process of all that made about 125 people very mercury toxic. Hmm. And they're not gold miners. Yeah. So they're not being exposed on it. And so we've, uh, we've uh, initiated a study uh, in Colombia uh, on those people because they've tried to treat them with DMPS and DMSA and uh, I don't know how well it's working. I mean, I can tell you they don't think it's worked very well. So we're, we're going back, we're going to go there and we have that set up because they do have very high levels. All right. And so well, we're going to be able to show. Very exciting. Yeah. So I think we've, we've probably exceeded our okay. time limit here for for, <laughs> for, for it, but... Well, enjoy talking to you. Well, not as half as much as I did to learn all this great information. I mean, you've been, you're just... It's such a magnificent contribution to health and disease prevention and, and treatment that to have this type of resource that can make such a dramatic dent on this. And it's a real tragedy that you ha that it's really been off the market for the last eight years or so because of the regulatory issues. But uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't quite sure of it, what had happened with you, and, but I didn't, and I didn't really but I realize what the FDA issue was. So it was just this perceived threat that caused you to back off that really, and I'm glad you didn't wind up in jail or anything because of this. Well, but, they tried to. Yeah. I mean, they weren't, they weren't there being nice to me. Yeah. They were looking for something I did because when the lady who was with the FDA yeah. left, she says, Dr. Haley, we didn't treat you right. I thought I, thought I was deal, deal, working with a drug dealer when I came here to look at you. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, everything I've seen is not that Yeah, right. I mean, it's just, it's just like, you know, hundreds of years in the future to look back at this yeah. is what, the, just like we look back hundreds of years uh, backwards now, and I mean, it's just so insanely, ridiculously primitive mm -hmm. pers uh, take on things when it, you have such a powerful solution to uh, diseases that are devastating us. I mean, neurodegenerative disease is an epidemic. Well, so is, uh, so is kidney failure. Yeah. And we have shown with this that we make rats suffer from kidney failure give them NBMI and their kidneys. Yeah, I forgot we had talked about that earlier because yeah. you, you, you didn't have the data to support this. And I, you know, as we're doing this, I'm not certain, of it, but you were speculating that it's up to 15, 70% of the budget of healthcare in the United States, and the budget is over $3 trillion, is, is devoted to mm -hmm. end-stage renal disease. Well, and, and look, look at, if you look, you know what the NHANES study is. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you look at that, they, they showed that as Americans age, after they go past 18, they start building up very, very high levels of mercury in their bodies. Mm -hmm. And this is from, I think, an EPA-directed initiative. And uh, they, they make the statement that the mercury level in 10% of American women is such that it would cause the children to be born with neurodevelopmental disorders. Yeah. Yeah. That's not me. That's, yeah. a, that's one end of the government. Yeah. And the other end of the government says, oh, no, this is great. Yeah. This is nothing going on here. Don't look. There's nothing to see here. And so how do you, how do you, uh, how do you uh, rationalize that? 
it's the interest on making money that's controlling our yeah, no our question. regulatory agencies. And yeah. otherwise they well, it's, a, it, it, it's not that the regulatory agencies are trying to make money. It's just they're being controlled by industry who's yeah, seeking sure. profit as their bottom line, which controls the regulatory agencies. Yeah, that's a but, more correct way of saying it. Thank yeah, you. So, uh, you know, because we got to understand it's a real issue. Yeah. So anyway, I want to yeah. thank you again. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you. You're a real inspiration, and thank you for all you've done. It's really uh, yeah. qu quite a benefit to humanity. So. Yeah. Well, we're making progress, and we're yeah. hoping, uh, I mean, we have uh, put in two drug manufacturing files mm -hmm. with the uh, FDA, and we're getting ready to give them a, a set up an IND with the FDA. And the FDA, that end of the FDA works well, by the way. They, they, they have a lot of regulations. I mean, we've had three uh, compassionate uses approved in the United States. Mm -hmm. But all three of them, uh, the doctors refuse to do them because of the paperwork. Yeah. After they get approval to do it because there's just too much paperwork. Yeah. First of all, they have to have an IRB for a single patient. I mean, that just makes them say that's too expensive for yeah, one yeah. patient. And so, anyway, All right. Still well, got thank a lot you. Of work to do. Yeah, we <laughs> yeah. sure do. Well, yeah. Thank you. And look forward to okay. what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, so do.